please help me welcoming in Eric Youngblood. It's finance. Let's pray. <laughs> With gratitude for a death that was ours, with mindfulness of a resurrection we could not achieve, with hopefulness of a, an eventual return, we come to you and ask that today you would give me an instructed tongue that I might bring refreshment to these people that you adore, that you might give them something to help them follow you gladly for a long time, loving what you love and hating what you hate. Come, Lord Jesus, we invite you. Amen. Hear these words. You probably read them this morning during your quiet time. No quiet time? Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and four more after it. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Well, here's why. It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence, as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I realize from the outset that most of you have heard thousands of sermons on Malachi chapter 2. And so for the forthcoming redundancy, I apologize in advance. You probably heard a sermon on this yesterday. And I also figured that since nearly everyone in this room is presently unmarried, that it would make good sense to speak of God's hatred of divorce. Because what could be more appropriate than talking about something that has no apparent relevance in any of your lives just yet? But I'm not so foolish as some of those close to me may think, and I do realize that all but about seven of you have some aspiration for marriage. Is this correct? When I was a younger person and had friends here, they called this place Marriage Mill on Hill, or The Hill, I left out the articles. <laughs> but if we're going to aspire to such things, there are things we ought not leave out. And so it seems to me that we ought to entertain a rather peculiar passage that has something mighty strange to say to us in the present moment in which we live. 
And before I get exactly into God's disdain for the busting up of marriage, I'd like to tell a story first because I think it illustrates well something that ought to happen in us when we hear these words. When I was not very much older than you guys, a newly graduated student, I was up in Nashville, Tennessee, spending the night with some buddies on my way the next morning on a flight out of there. And it so happened that I was staying in this apartment, which was neither clean nor nice. And fortune would have it, though, that I was permitted to sleep on a couch. And this couch was not just any couch. It was navy, and it was adorned with, just like the one you have at home, unicorns. That should have been somewhat of an ominous bit of foreboding for me, because how often is it that a person goes to sleep on a unicorn couch, and what kinds of things might happen to you if you are asleep on a unicorn couch? What sort of dimensions and portals and other realities might you be entered into? No one knows. But I discovered that night, in the rudest sort of way, as I was immersed in slumber upon this comfortable unicorn couch, I was rudely, as I said, awakened by such as this. Let it be quiet first, because it was then. Turn it down! Turn it down! I'm saying turn it down, if you can't understand the screeching. You see... It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was totally silent, and I was fast asleep. And you know how when you are suddenly awakened by such a jolting kind of brain-rattling noise, like a screech owl that takes your breath away, only this screech owl was dressed as a woman. (laughs) This woman was at our door, outside the door, but I did not know where I was because it was 3 in the morning. I had been fast asleep on my unicorn couch, and she was screaming with anger, with terror, with alarm. Turn it down. Well, though I was many pounds and inches taller and larger and probably stronger than she, I would not open the door to her because I feared my imminent death. (laughs) And she continued to scream, and I answered her screams with this, the best I could do, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't hear anything. It's totally quiet. You're screaming. Would you turn it down? <laughs> I didn't say that part. Because she might, she might have been armed for all I know. She had a big NRA patch on her shoulder. Well, so suddenly she says, funny, I don't hear it anymore. And she walked off, presumably back to her asylum. Now, the thing is about that story is I think of it often when I think about what the prophets do in the Bible and the kinds of things that they say in the Bible and the kinds of things that they report God saying. They're meant, like that lady, I think, to freak us out. They're meant to make your brain rattle a little bit. They're meant to make your pulse quicken. They're meant to make you be alarmed. Abraham Heschel 
wrote this way about the prophets. He says, in the Bible, the realness of God came first. And the task was how to live in a way compatible with his presence. The prophet disdains those for whom God's presence is comfort and security. Because to the prophet, God's presence is a challenge. An incessant demand. God is compassion, but he's not compromise. He's justice, but not inclemency. The prophet's word is a scream in the night. Do you see the connection between what, that and what I just told you? The prophet's word is a scream in the night while the world is at ease and asleep, maybe even on a unicorn couch. The prophet feels the blast from heaven. Prophets are trying to get something across to us. Things that we think, oh, that's not any big deal. Oh, everyone does that. Oh, it's okay if I fudge a little here. Prophets realize because they've been with God that this is not just a minor infraction. This is a death blow to existence as God intended it. And so they blast almost like a scream in the night. And so it's a little alarming for us when God takes up words such as many of you were not even permitted to say in your house. Our children weren't when they were little. Don't say hate. Say you don't like. But God, refusing his mama's advice, says I hate divorce. I hate divorce. I hate it. When you cover yourself with violence, equating the two in a way, It's a blast from heaven. It ought to startle us a little bit. And if you get nothing else from what I'm saying today, I hope that you'll at least leave here thinking that God hates divorce. It's a very complicated message that I have. God hates divorce. And I think when he says he hates it, he means uh, that he hates it. (laughs) That he can't stand it. That it's vandalism to the good shalom that he's created. It's, it's an introduction of sickness into the good earth that he's founded. It's a violent perversion of everything that he intends. So he says to these Israelites who were wondering after exile, why is restoration not happening? Why is the golden age not being ushered in? And for besides the 17 other reasons that God gives them in Malachi, he says, here's one of them. You're perverting the good that I made. You're being tyrannically ruled by your own desire. You are practicing what I hate. And I hate it. See, When God talks about things like divorce, of course, he's also talking about marriage. And when he's talking about marriage, he's also talking about covenant, about being bound together so inextricably that should something happen to rupture it, it would be like losing your arm. Like that poor knight in Monty Python. You can maybe exist without either of your arms and legs and maybe continue to fight, but not the way God intended. 
And so God says, I hate divorce, which is to say, I think this thing ought to be permanent. Over the years at Rock Creek, we have hosted weddings. Many of you have been to weddings. Some of you will be in weddings. Others of you will hate people who are in those weddings (laughs) because yours has not happened yet. But one of the particular challenges that we've had over the years is trying to figure out what our wedding policies should be. And early on, we, we consulted what are the best practices of other churches. Because we're a young church. We're just 12 years old now. And early on, and we would look at these established churches, and they would have so many rules. And, you know, we're cool and hip. Yeah, that's what everyone says of me. But I thought, we don't need to have all them rules. We don't need to have 100 policies. Why do they have a policy about... No parakeets allowed in the service. And then I started realizing as we hosted some weddings, none of yours, of course, none of your friends. Well, the reason there's a policy that says you can't have a parakeet in your wedding is because sometimes, somewhere, there was somebody, it was probably related to the lady who was screaming at me at nothing in the night, who said, can we please have parakeets in the service because they symbolize the colorfulness of love. (laughs) And they thought, oh my, we, we never thought about that before. We would like to squash such behavior because we're trying to encourage another kind of behavior. A good friend of mine and Scott's, Professor Jones's, who's a dweller on the left coast and planted a church out there. So he's way hipper and wears skinny jeans and such. He encountered one time while we were together, uh, a unique request in this de-churched land, this post-Christian milieu. When the Lord's Supper was being offered, someone in good, earnest faith brought their dog up to the Lord's table, and the elders were confused. Can my dog take the Lord's Supper too? Well, maybe in... Some of your churches back home, you've had a similar kind of instance, but I'm not a betting man, but I would bet in this case you have not. Who brings their dog to take the Lord's Supper? Well, dogs are people too. Apparently, on the left coast, that's a joke, Californians. Well, so you had to, that's the left coast, you see. I love you people. But you see, sometimes things come up that you wouldn't think to say, so you come up with a policy, you come up with an order, you come up with a rule, you come up with an aspiration for it because you're trying to put down certain things. That church is now going to have to have an anti-animal participant, participation in the Lord's Supper clause that we probably won't have to have. Probably. And churches might have an anti-parakeet clause because for the same reason. Well, God has an anti-divorce clause. Because like anybody setting a policy, he's trying to squash certain things because he's trying to promote other things. G.K. Chesterton stumbled on this one time in his masterful book called Orthodoxy, which you don't have time to read now, but maybe sometime in your life you will. And he says, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and an order, 
The chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. See, we don't normally think of rules like that. We think of things like, you may not be divorced as a stultifying, claustrophobic command, perhaps. At least in our culture, people do. One person for the rest of forever? What if they look like Pastor Eric later? (laughs) Even then. But Chesterton said, you know what? I realized that these policies, these laws were given to create an order so that good things had room to run wild. And it occurs to me today as we listen to God saying, I hate divorce. That part of the reason that he hates divorce is because divorce halts the running wild of good things. Instead, it lets loose a sickness on the land that defiles everything. It demolishes what he intends. And so he sets a policy and a design that says, I am going to bring flesh and spirit together as mine to become one, abandoning both of their independent worlds and becoming a new order themselves that I have put together that no one should rip apart because he wants to let good things run wild. He hates divorce because he wants to let good things run wild. What are some of those good things? We're going to go through a few of them and then we will stop. Here's one. He hates divorce. Oh, and by the way, you know Jesus backs him up on this. This ain't just like an Old Testament irrelevant thing. If you're that kind of person, you wouldn't learn that here. But you might not be listening. You know, Jesus one time was talking about this. He was being tested about divorce. And his answer was such that his disciples, when they got done hearing him, said, Uh... They did a lot of that. And then they said, if that's, if that's what we're supposed to do, then we should not get married. And you can imagine Jesus saying, you heard me right. Okay, your response lets me know you heard me right. He answered differently, but I just want that to linger with you for a minute. The disciples, when they heard Jesus teaching on marriage, thought, oh my gosh, it's probably better not to get married. And if some of you decide not to get married, God bless you. You might be wise. But most of you will decide to get married, and it's a good thing. God hates divorce because he loves good things to run wild. And here's the first one he loves to run wild. The multiplication of little Christs. He wants them running everywhere. Crumb snatchers. Terrifying and terrorizing the place with their giddiness and gladness. He says, and why? Why has God brought them one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. He wanted people to live in these little microcosms of his redemptive drama called houses, called homes, where children little statues of God, little image bears were running about and they were breathing in mercy air. He wanted children who grew up knowing there's one God on the planet and we are his and he is good. 
They wanted children to know that there's such a thing as fidelity that holds things and people and places together. I sometimes think that my wife and I, one of the best things we teach our children, and hopefully we teach them many more things than these, but one of the best things we teach our children is that you can have a fight with someone. You can be at odds with someone. You can be deeply disappointed in someone. You can deeply let someone down. And that is not the end of anything. That reconciliation trumps conflict. That mercy means that sometimes you get kissed on the lips when you deserve a sock in the nose. And God wants people not to get divorced because he loves it. When children grow up in homes where forgiveness is the norm, where reconciliation is aspired to, and they get a taste of living redemptively in a world that's on the verge of being blown to bits. He hates divorce because he loves the good thing of multiplying little Christs. He also hates divorce because he loves the good thing of actual, particular love. He keeps saying, the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. You know, God is concerned, in this case, with these men not loving the wife that they were presumably arranged to be married to. And that's instructive for us as well, you see. Like God's getting mad at them for divorcing people that they might not have wanted to marry in the first place. You get to pick. He doesn't think the picking's that important. Because at some point, it boils down to actual love for a particular person. And of course, that's the kind of thing that he's all about in the world. He sets his affection on a particular people. We believe that he has inexplicably set his affection on each of us, particularly. That he's governing our individual lives and moments. Well, he also wants us to be people who love, not love, but actual people. And we are in danger right now of being a a people who are intoxicated with the notion of love. But it's very flimsy. It's a very viral view of love. Love is something that happens to you. You look at a certain young man or a certain young woman and you just, you breathe in some kind of love bacteria and suddenly you're infected. And at some point, of course, bacteria as well, they, they get attacked by your immune system and antibodies develop and suddenly you can say ridiculous things like, well, I love them, but I'm not in love with them. And so before God hits you in the nose for saying something like that, realize that what he's up to is love as something far more sturdy, reliable, that's based in loyalty and fidelity and allegiance and a kind of thing that you and I don't always think about. But it's the kind of thing that makes marriage possible. Hannah Coulter is a woman in a Wendell Berry novel and she knew what love was 
and she knew the particularity of it. She wasn't in love with some abstract idea of it. She wasn't in love with people in general. She was in love with some particular people and thought, God had given these to me to love. This is what is said of her. These were her study, these Coulter men. Figuring them out, figuring them out was her need, her way of loving them, and sometimes her amusement. She thought it strange and wonderful that she had been given these, the near demonstrative pronoun, these, to love. Sorry to break out English on you. She thought it strange and wonderful that she had been given these to love. Of course, that's what happens to you when you commit to a kind of love that's based and rooted in loyalty, that's undergirded by a kind of commitment that's supported by a vow called marriage. Then love has a place to flourish and grow and something to keep coming back to. And you, well, you have someone, an assignment. This particular person I'm called to love. And you know, you can practice this now. You're in the middle of a life right now. It's, it's not your complete adult life. It's not happened yet, but it's a real one. And you've got real people all around you right now that you can love. That actual person. Your annoying roommate who doesn't take you into account. Your thoughtless professor who gives you way too much work. You have people who are given to you that you may love, and this is what God loves to run wild. Actual love, not a viral view of it. He also hates divorce because he loves dependence. He loves for dependence to run wild and mutual interdependence too. Listen to what he says here. I hate divorce and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with his garment. See, he regards this putting away of a wife and of course we can flip it and say the putting away of a husband of disregarding someone entirely when he has created the good thing of Mutuality of us mutually depending on each other. And so when that's severed, sickness grows and he hates it. One of the best pastoral situations I can recall was in the middle of a tragic one. And a woman said this. She said this to one of our elders. She and her husband were in the most horrible kind of predicament. It seemed as if there was no hope for them. But there was one strand holding things together called her vow. And she knew it. And she knew that God hated divorce. And she said this to us. Would you please help me keep my vow? Would you please help me keep my vow? Oh, that you would walk away today thinking God hates divorce. So I'll hate divorce. So one day when marriage seems intolerable, and this is a spoiler alert, it will. Not every day, but sometimes. Oh, you've got people, and you've got a Lord who hates divorce to whom you can repair. Help me keep my vow. Friends, help me keep my vow. You can be those who help each other keep your vows. Because God loves for vow keeping and fidelity to run wild because he hates divorce. And he also hates divorce because he loves freedom to run wild. And he's opposed to our ruin. 
If you're someone who, like the people being referred to here, who give up the wife of their youth, what one theologian would call an aversion divorce, which these happen all the time. We call them no-fault divorces. People just grow tired. They realize, I got a, I got a jalopy here. This dude ain't who I thought he was going to be. This lady's way meaner than she was when we were dating. This man, way more insensitive. Well, what happens is, if you don't have this baseline of hating divorce with God, you'll be tyrannized by yourself. You'll be tyrannized by your own desires. You'll be tyrannized by always wondering, is there a better woman out there for me? A better man out there for me? Is there a better life out there for me? And you know what God would have you do? He would have you submit yourself to the joyous freedom of not being tyrannized by your own desires anymore. Of letting you lean into the glorious freedom of saying, I am a kept person. Kept by vows to this woman. Kept by vows to this man. I don't have to be ruled by wondering anymore if I got the wrong one. You didn't. The vow says you didn't. The vow says God has joined you together and he wants you to be free. And he doesn't want you to be ruined. And I close with this and I'm gone too long, but I got to share the story with you because this is how you summarize all of it. God hates divorce because he loves to rehabilitate dilapidated things. And now, I haven't said anything at all about exceptions. Are there exceptions to this God hates divorce? Sure there are. I'm not talking about that. You can't jump to the exceptions. You've got to have this in your DNA. God hates divorce because he loves these things I've mentioned. And mainly, he loves to repair debilitated things. We have in our congregation an elder and his wife, and it's one of the best marriage stories I know. They like each other. They've been married 40 years, and they like each other. That, my friends, is a magnificent miracle. There was a time, though, when this elder and his wife, they had divorce papers drawn up. She was deeply disillusioned, deeply unhappy, certain that she was to get out of this marriage. It was going to affect their offspring. They were going to learn, give up. She called her parents. Her parents, who hated divorce with God, told her this answer. If you leave him, you may not come here because you got no reason to leave him. Whoa. I don't know if any parents on the planet Earth would say that these days, but I hope you'll be parents like that. And I hope you'll tell your parents to say that to you one day if you want to quit. If you quit, you can't come here. So she had nowhere to go except to the Lord in dependence, except back to her husband. And dependence. And you know what they decided? Because they learned to hate divorce together, because they were infected with this idea that God loved for good things to grow wild. They said, We are going to be happy together, even if it kills us. <laughs> well, see, that's what a firm commitment to hating divorce will do. It makes you say, There's no out. So I've got to lean in hard in total abandonment upon the reviving, resuscitating mercy of Christ. And it, even if it kills us, we're going to be happy. And today I'm sharing this story because it's a great redemption story. And they model so beautifully what marriage is supposed to be about. 
And they know that God hates divorce because he loves to see good things run wild. Amen.